Folks, we are in Galatians chapter 4, and uh, just having a blast. This is so easy. <laughs> this, is, this, this is not one of the easier parts of the scriptures to uh, interpret, but I think we're having fun going through it because the, the lessons are, uh, I mean, the message that Paul gives to us is so vital for our everyday existence. If we don't get this right, nothing's going to work right. If we don't know how it is that we're acceptable before God, we're not going to be able to deal with our own guilty consciences. We're not going to be able to manage our anger. We're not going to be able to manage our lusts, our jealousy, our envies. Uh, we're not going to be able to handle our mouth and control that. We're not going to be able to have a clear purpose in life that's built out of joy and gratitude. It's all, we're always going to be performance-driven and guilt-driven. Life's going to be a mess if we don't get this right. And that's the reason that we're studying Galatians this year, that we might get the main thing right. Back in chapter 2, Paul gave us his basic thesis. That is that justification or righteousness, it's the same word, our standing before God, our being acquitted before Him as the judge, is based on one thing. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not based on your performance. Now that ought to come as a great relief to most of you knuckleheads. <laughs> I mean, if you just take one moment, one hour out of your life, just give us your best hour, and let's see how good it is. It ain't good enough. It's a failure, and we all know that down deep inside, regardless of the number of games we play with ourselves and others and the image management that we do. We know that we are not perfect, and perfect is what's required before God because He's perfect, and nothing imperfect will ever be allowed into His presence to have eternal life. So we've got to be perfect, and we're not. And the message here, the basic thesis, you find back in chapter 2, verses 15, 16, they were justified because we believe in one whose righteousness stands for us. And we believe that through faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are transferred to Him and He bears the burden of them. So our sins go to Him, His righteousness comes to us. That is great news, but it's hard to believe, especially if you've been reared in a moralistic environment. You were trained from your mother's knee that... You'll get what you earn. You know, do it the do it the old-fashioned way. Earn it. You know, and you've been taught all your lives that everything has to be earned and deserved, including your religion. And a lot of even churches have taught in years past, uh, without necessarily doing it explicitly, they do it implicitly, teaching that the the way to be acceptable before God is to keep all the rules, keep your nose clean, and. You know, don't drink, smoke, chew, or dance with girls who do, and all the rest. I mean, you just keep your life straight, clean, honest, like a good Boy Scout, and then you're going to make it. I have nothing against the Boy Scouts. I happen to be one myself. But that's not the way to salvation. Some Boy Scouts may think so. And some Christians think that by keeping the Ten Commandments or doing the best they can, quote, quote, uh, they will make it. Paul's saying no. And he spends the rest of Galatians, Galatians showing us how this life works out. Now, we're in the midst of his arguments. He's been making theological arguments. He's been making biblical arguments going all the way back to Father Abraham, who's the key to this, uh, for a Jewish person. Because we've seen that the opposition he's facing in Galatia are those who come from a Jewish background who believe in Jesus, that he's Messiah. But in order to be saved, you have to receive Jesus Christ and keep up all your mother's traditions. Everything that she told you, you got to keep your nose clean. you got to do this, do that, and do that. And you must bear the marks of being in the family of God, namely circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, food laws, and all the rest. 
And Moses, uh, Paul is saying, look, if that's what you believe, you don't believe the gospel. You haven't gotten it. The gospel cancels all that stuff. There's nothing inherently wrong with the food, the dietary laws. But there's something wrong with thinking that because you keep them, you've found acceptance with God. There's nothing wrong with being circumcised. I suppose a lot of you are circumcised. But there's something wrong with your thinking. That's your badge of honor that includes you in the family of God. I haven't heard any Gentiles say that lately. But Jewish people thought that. That was their mark. And Paul is spending a whole lot of time talking to these Galatians about not being fooled by a religious group that wants to co-opt Christianity into their performance-based, sign-based religion. And the fact is we've seen that Christianity is always being co-opted by indigenous cultures, religious cultures. No matter where you go in the world, if the church has been planted there, it's not ten minutes until the indigenous culture is seeking to co-opt the Christian faith. And the problem is, you can see everybody else's attempt to co-opt. You can't see your own attempt to co-opt it. But we do it all the time, right here in Memphis, Tennessee. We have our own culture, we have our own religious assumptions, and we tend to co-opt the gospel and to twist it into something else. That's what Paul's dealing with. He's made historical arguments. He's made biblical arguments. He's made theological arguments. We saw last week, he makes an impassionate ad hominem argument. He makes an argument that's really emotional, that's relational. He says, you were willing to give your eyes for me. I was having eye problems and you would have taken your eyes out of your sockets and given them to me. Why is it now that you've turned on the gospel I preached to you? He's saying, I can't understand you people. Well, it just goes to show you, we're all fickle. The power of performance-based, guilt-driven religion is so powerful, you can be taught the gospel, raise your hand, get baptized, sanitized, Christianized. You can be an elder in the church, and all of a sudden, something will take you astray. Just look at Solomon's life. A guy started out so great. Lord, I'm a child. I don't know how to go. I'll give you wisdom. Gives him wives. He has 800 concubines, and they're taking him off to worship foreign gods at the end of his life. It's strange. So Paul is making his argument, showing us how it works out. And then, you remember he said in the beginning of chapter 4, look, this is tied to the life of the Holy Spirit. He said, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it because you performed well and so God blessed you with the Spirit? Or was it because you trusted in Jesus and then He poured out His Spirit into your life and gave you power and gave you His presence? Well, obviously, it was the latter. So he says, everything in your experience is telling you this. Paul is... It's a life and death struggle for the gospel is what's going on here. And then he's showing us how it works out. Now, before we get to chapter 5, which is going to talk to us more about how you live out this life, Paul really kind of comes to the closing part of his argument on justification. And here you have in these verses ahead of us, verses 21 through 31, one of the most remarkable arguments in all the Pauline epistles. I mean, this is a stunner. And it's kind of like he's been making his arguments about these Judaizers who's trying to co-opt the gospel. And in this text we're going to read, he draws such a sharp contrast in such a shocking way. There is no way that everybody didn't get the point. Uh, I mean, he, he really pulls out the dagger here and stabs a death blow into old Judaism and in so doing gives a death blow to every performance-based religion which is every religion in the world outside of the religion of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. 
He just kills it. And one of the ones in our day is basically nominal Christianity. What is nominal Christianity? It's trying to have Christianity without the cross, without substitutionary atonement, without depending upon Jesus Christ for your righteousness. Whether you look at moralistic right-wing Christianity or moralistic left-wing Christianity, they're both moralistic. The right wing has, as their sex, as their ethic code, you know, no sex and all this kind of stuff and no drinking. All, you know, they've got their code. Over here, it's social justice. This is how you're saved by being fair with everybody, by keeping the, the ethics of social justice. So whether it's the right or the left, they're both moralistic. And this drives a death blow to both of them. And then what we see, of course, is when you embrace the gospel, your sexual ethic gets in line out of living a life of gratitude and worship of God, and so does your social justice uh, life get in line because your heart's been changed. That's what Paul's addressing. But let's look at this most unusual section um, that theologically is one of the most helpful in all of his writings. Let's look now at verse 21 in chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent Two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written... Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, when's the last time you committed all of that to memory as your memory verses? You're going, tell me, what in the world is he talking about? Well, we're going to see. It's a fascinating, fascinating study and very powerful indeed. First thing we want to see is, Paul is saying to them, look, Abraham had not one son, he had two sons, and it wasn't by one woman, it was two women. So he's saying, you who want to be under the law, you want to take us back to Abraham, you want to belong to Abraham because you are descended physically from Abraham, and you want to be his children by by this kind of birth. Let me remind you of something very important. Abraham didn't just have one son. God didn't make a promise and he just had one son and all the blessings of Abraham come down through that one son. No, Paul says he had two sons. Read your Bible. Let's look and see what happens with those two sons. Now, the first one was Ishmael. And in Genesis 16, uh, you'll see about his birth. And why was he born? Well, because Sarah said, Hey, Abe, God says we're going to have a kid. 
<clears throat> I'm getting to be old, and you're looking about, uh, uh, see, Abraham was 86 years old. Uh, I'm beginning to think maybe we ain't going to have a kid, Abraham. You're 86, and I am about 77 or so. So, here, I've got a slave woman. Let me give her to you. I've got a maidservant. Why don't you sleep with her? You still good at 86? Can you handle this? Uh, Abe goes, I'll give him a best shot. <laughs> so, I'll give it a try, honey. I'm 86, but I'll give it my give it, I'll, Honey, you know me. I'll give it my best effort. So they, they go have a child. So that's where Ishmael came from. It was from the slave woman, Hagar. And Paul reminds them, look, this was a child. This was a child. So you call yourselves children of Abraham. So did Ishmael. But let's look at something very important. Number one, he was a child of slavery. He was born by the slave woman. So Abraham has children who are slaves. That's what Paul is saying. So, you grew up in the church. Your daddy was an elder or a deacon or a preacher. And a lot of, there's some people in this room, you've told me, my daddy was a preacher, my grandfather, father's a preacher. Great, that's good. Paul says it's wonderful to have a heresy and a legacy like that. It really is. My grandfather was one of those types of people. My dad was a Christian. My mother was a church organist. That's impressive, isn't it? <laughs> that, that, that ought to be enough to get me in, right? That's what these people were saying. I belong to Abraham. That's enough to get me in. I'm, I'm free because I'm a child of Abraham. No, you're not. Because Abraham has slave children. Secondly, notice that he, he says this person was born in the ordinary or natural way. It's a child of nature. So, Paul is reminding them God made a promise that God was going to give him a, a legacy. God was going to give him a child, an heir through which the promises given to Abraham for a mighty nation and the land that was going to be his and a great future that that was going to come through this seed, this son. God made a promise. But in this case, Sarah had her own strategy. And Abraham agreed. And it was born in the natural way. It was not the child of promise. And so Paul said, so you're a child, a natural child of Abraham. Let me tell you something. That doesn't mean anything in terms of eternal life. So you've been sitting in church. So did Ishmael. His daddy was Abraham, but he was always a slave child, born in the natural way. And John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, you see, he's talking to the whole church. He's talking to people who've grown up as children of Abraham, children of the church. And he says to them, do you know what? Don't tell me you're children of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham out of these rocks. So don't lay claim to being a child of Abraham. That's in Matthew chapter 3. You'll see John the Baptist had the same message. Be very careful that you're grateful for your legacy. You're grateful for the teachings you've received. You're grateful for the evangelical jet set people that you know. I know some people who really just take great pride that they're personal friends with James Dobson or something like that. Great. It's wonderful to be great friends with James Dobson. But that a rock can be friends with James Dobson. That's what John the Baptist is saying. And that's what Paul is saying to these Galatians. Look, these people who are trying to tell you you have to do this, that, and the other, it's just going to lead you to slavery because that's where Ishmael came from. Now, secondly, he said he had a child named Isaac. And 
you'll see about Isaac's birth in Genesis 21. And in Genesis 17, you'll see further how Abraham says to God, Now, God, uh, won't Ishmael do? I just assume he'll be fine, you know, as my heir. God says, No. I told you I was going to give you one, a child of promise. You did that your own way. I said you and Sarah are going to have a child. I said that. Fourteen years later, you know, Abraham's getting around 99 to 100. God says, now the time will be right. And Abraham said, look, I gave my best shot 14 years ago. No, just give it another one. And Sarah, at 90 years of age, gets pregnant. Now, that's the child of promise. And so it was born in an extraordinary way. It wasn't incarnational like the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was extraordinary. And number one, notice, this Isaac, he's the child of freedom. Paul says, and the other son was born by the free woman. And you in Christ are born to be free, not to be slaves. And you've got to realize that in the church, you have slave people and free people. And I'm not talking about human slavery. I'm talking about moral slavery. And to this day, there's some who are free and some who are not free within the church of, of Jesus Christ. He says the child of promise is a free person. Look at chapter 5 in Galatians. And you'll see Paul picks this theme up again. We'll see it next week. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Look at verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. It's your calling to be free. So it doesn't matter what your employment is. It doesn't matter if you have three bosses and you don't like any of them. It doesn't matter that you feel like a slave when you go to work. It doesn't matter that you go home and feel like a slave. (laughs) The fact is that in Christ, you are free. It doesn't matter, as I said to you last time, if the judge calls you guilty. You humble yourself before the court. You pay your fine. You say, yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, your honor. No, your honor. And then you've got a big smile on your heart because you know there's nobody that can condemn you. You're free. You belong to the Lord. And Paul is saying that is the person that we follow. Now, here's what's being said. He says, this is a, you are a child, or Isaac is a child of freedom. And secondly, child, he's a child of promise. He was born as a result of a promise. Here is the big point Paul is making. Now, he's going to twist the dagger in just a minute. It's going to get even more shocking and stunning to, to these Judaizers. But the first thing he's saying is, when you look at how the blessing comes, if you look at Abraham, he had these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. One of them was accepted indeed. One of them, the promise came through, but the other was rejected, child of Abraham, and circumcised baptized, sanitized, in the church, took the sacraments, made the profession. In other words, he had all the signs and the insignia of belonging to Abraham, but he didn't. He was rejected. His whole line was rejected. Now look at Isaac. Well, let's do this. Leave your finger in Galatians. Go back to Romans chapter 9. And here, here's where Paul makes this argument in another context. And the context in Romans, you'll of course remember from 12 years ago when we studied Romans, that Paul is saying that the, the, the gospel comes to us by grace and God will never let us go and he's included the Gentiles. And now, of course, everyone's asking, well, does this mean he broke his promise to Israel? So you're saying now he's going to save Gentiles. What about Israel and all these promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Does this make God a liar? Well, here's Paul's answer. 
He says in verse 6, this is page 1825, Romans 9 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. This is his defense. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's the main point. That just because your daddy and your mama and your great grandparents are going all the way, if you can give us your lineage all the way back to John Calvin, or in this case, you can give us your lineage all the way back to Abraham. All who are in Israel, that is physical Israel, are not in spiritual Israel. All who are sons of the free man Abraham are not necessarily free, is what he's saying. Verse 7, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So now he's saying you can be a descendant and not really be his true child. Remarkable statement. On the contrary, and here he picks up this argument again, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Offspring are reckoned. We are made offspring. And it's through Isaac that will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So we're reckoned or regarded as offspring. It's not natural genealogy that makes the difference. Now, gentlemen, this is a huge argument. It has incredible theological significance. The whole sort of dispensational scheme that many of us may have been brought up on around here is based on God keeping His promise to physical descendants of Israel. The big problem that dispensationalism seeks to solve is here's how we're going to show that God is faithful to His promises to Israel. He's going to do it later in the millennium. In 1948, they came and restored Jerusalem. And God's going to build up His natural people of promise again. And He's going to give them the land and the nation and the legacy that He promised to Abraham because God never breaks a promise. Paul says, nix all that. That's wrong thinking. Because the children of promise are reckoned to be children of promise. Because why? They believe the promise. It has to do with faith, and faith has to do with promises. You're believing a promise. So when you believe the promise, it's yours and you're reckoned a child. And you are the true Jew. This is what's being said. Now, continue the argument in Romans. He says, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Verse 9, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now look at verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children. Now Rebekah was Isaac's wife. Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Now in Rebekah's case, these two children had the same father and the same mother. And furthermore, they were twins, Esau and Jacob. And he says, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, and so on. Wow. So you see there's an accepted line, a rejected line with, uh, with Isaac uh, and Ishmael, and then of the sons of Isaac, there's an accepted line and a rejected line. So even if you're a child of Isaac you're not necessarily accepted. It's through the promise. 
that you become a child of Abraham. Now back to Galatians chapter 4. So this is the argument Paul is making in the first three verses of our text. He's saying, if we're going to be eminently biblical about being children of Abraham by nature, let's go back to the Bible and see what happens with people who are natural descendants of the godly person, the promised line, the promissory line. Let's see what happens to them. And you know what, gentlemen? I see the same thing today. There are some very fine, committed Christian men in this room, and some of their sons have not chosen to follow in the way. I do not understand that. But there is no automatic promise. Now, Solomon happens to observe the general observation that when you rear a child in the way he shall go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is generally true, and a wise man notices it. He sees blessings through the generation. But there's no absolute guarantee. You can have an Abraham and end up with an Ishmael. You can have an Isaac and end up with an Esau. And of course we know that ethically Jacob was a whole lot worse than Esau was. But Jacob believed. He repented and believed. Even though he was a worse man, if you will, than Esau was. So it's the promise. Putting your faith in the promise that makes us a child of Abraham. Now secondly, when you look at verses 24 through 27, you see that Abraham's free child is not who some think he is. Watch Paul twist the dagger here with this fascinating allegory. He uses the allegorical method, which is very unusual for Paul. We don't, in my opinion, we don't have the interpretive right to go to the Bible and just start making allegories out of it to make a point. But when the prophets or the apostles make an allegory, then it's the Word of God. And they certainly uh, have, have the spiritually given right to do that. We must be careful to use grammatical historical methods of interpreting the Bible within its own literature to understand it according to the genre in which it's written. But here, the Apostle Paul, look what he does. First of all, he says, these things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. So he's going to give us a little figurative uh, representation here. He's going to give us an allegory that Hagar is going to represent one covenant and Sarah is going to represent another covenant. Now, he says, first of all, the slave child is the unbelieving covenant child of Israel. This is where it gets really stunning. He is saying that... The slave child is actually the Judaizers. It's actually those who claim to be the sons of Sarah, not of Ishmael. Now we know the Ishmaelites turned out to be the other Arabian tribes. Of course, ultimately, isn't it interesting that the Ishmaelites were the heart of the beginning of Islam? Hmm. I think I see a trend here. Uh, So, in a Jewish mind, the children of Hagar were out there in the desert and they were enemies. They always had been. And you can see when when Ishmael is born, Hagar is told he's going to be a wild ass of a man. The NIV is wild donkey. I just like wild ass because that's in the KJV. Uh, He's going to be a wild ass of a man. Well, he was a wild ass of a man. Caused a lot of problems. And it says, and he will be hostile to his brothers. And he's been hostile to his brothers now for thousands of years. That prophecy has been true. Ishmael talking about. 
But notice what Paul is saying. He is saying here that if you look at verse 1, he says, uh, this slave child is a child of the law. And he's talking about Israel now. He's not talking about the sons of Ishmael. He's talking about the sons of Isaac, the natural sons of Isaac. This is where the twist is in this allegory. And you'll notice he says, one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now hang on just a minute. The Ishmaelites didn't go to Mount Sinai. The Isaacites, the Israelites, the Jacobites, they went to Mount Sinai. You see what Paul is doing here? He's pulling a fast one on them. He's saying, you think that the children of Jacob are free. I'm telling you that outside of Jesus Christ, the children of Jacob are the sons of Hagar, not the sons of Sarah. They're in slavery, just like the Ishmaelites. He is saying the Israelites are Ishmaelites. This had to be the most offensive thing Paul could possibly say to them. I mean, Paul is saying, I want, I want this to be absolutely clear, what I'm saying. That if you are outside of Christ, you are cut off. You are not in the line of promise. You are not true Israelites. You have absolutely forsaken your heritage. You're like Esau who gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. You're like Ishmael who was born of a slave woman. That's what he's saying to them. He is throwing it right back in their face. He's saying to the Galatians, why would you listen to them? They're not the children anymore, really. Of Sarah. So he said, if you are counting on the law, if you come from Mount Sinai and that's your legacy, that's your main claim to fame, you've got the law, you just cut yourself off. You are not in, you're out. So all this stuff about God blessing a nation of Israel, reconstructing a temple, building a religion that is a kernel, I mean, rather the husk, not the kernel of the religion. They're going to build all these formalities and rituals and raise up another whole group of people who hate the gospel. You think God's going to bless that? Is that His plan of blessing? Paul is saying, no, you've, you've blown it. You think there's some blessing to being a natural descendant of Abraham and you missed the whole point. The blessing comes through the promise and believing in the promise. And that's the reason the Gentiles got included in the first place. Because that's how God gives His freedom to His children. And look further now. Number two, not only a child of the law, but a child of Jerusalem. So if He didn't stick it in their face strongly enough, He's going to really do it to them now. He's saying, you take your legacy back to Sinai and you take your legacy back to Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Well, let me tell you something about Jerusalem. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and, look at this verse, corresponds, verse 25, to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Wow. He's saying, if you've put your hopes in the restoration of Jerusalem, you're in slavery. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the promise. You think that God's big plan is to recreate some little city over there on the other side of the Mediterranean? You're lost. That's what he's saying. That's slavery. 
You see, he already explained earlier in chapter 4 that when you put yourself under the law instead of under His grace, you're like a little child being tutored. And he says there's no difference between a child under the discipline of a slave, which is what a tutor was. He was a slave. And he tutored the children of the free man. If you put yourself under that tutor, you're just like a slave. You have rights that will come to you later, but you don't have any rights now. You're a kid. You're being beat up by your tutor. He said, you're acting like slaves. You're acting like children who are minors. You're majority status. So rise up and act like free people. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, you're going back to Sinai and Jerusalem and this whole legacy thing, this physical Israel thing, and you're missing it. That's what he's saying. Now, if you'll, you could look through, I put some passages there in Luke in your, your, on your handouts. And there you have in Luke, Jesus who is saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathering her little chicks under her wing, but you wouldn't have any part of it. And then later on in chapter 19, he says, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you'd only known the time, and you haven't known the time, you've rejected, in other words, you've rejected your Messiah. And then furthermore, in Luke 21, he predicts the total destruction of Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, what is the time of the Gentiles? It's the present age that we're in. This is all time of the Gentiles. Gentiles are coming from China. Gentiles are coming from Cambodia. Gentiles are coming from Africa. Gentiles are coming from all over the world and have been for 2,000 years. This is the time of the Gentiles. And so Jerusalem will remain destroyed and it will have nothing to do with the promises of God until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That's what he says and that's what Jesus says in Luke 21. So you can look through those texts later and see that Jesus himself was a prophet against Israel, his own people. And you see this in the Old Testament where, for example, Isaiah says, or God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, you go preach the gospel and it's only going to harden people's heart. And Isaiah says, thanks a lot. But why would Isaiah do it? Because he had a vision of the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up. And he heard the seraphim sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah knew the glory of God, so he'd go do whatever God told him to do. And God said He was going to cut down Israel to one-tenth of what they were. That means nine-tenths was laid aside. It's a severe thing to be brought up in the true faith and to reject it. And you don't just hang around waiting for your legacy. You're cut off if you don't believe. So anyone who doesn't believe, no matter who their grandparents were, they're cut off. That's what Paul is saying. So why would you go over to a religion that's cut off and has nothing to do with the promises of God anymore except you can look at the husk and see that it used to be alive. It's like a dead tree. Oh, that's interesting. Dead tree. You can tell something about that tree. You can sometimes even look at the rings and see how old it is. You can do all kinds of things with a dead tree. You can burn it and make fire out of it. But you can't grow fruit on it. So you can look at a religion. That's an interesting religion. Look at all those the symbols, the, the heresy there, the legacy. It's interesting. Very interesting. Great privileges of having been in that tree. Now it's dead. He says you need to come into the live tree. And he makes that argument, of course, in Romans chapter 11. Now look at verses 26 and 27. And we learn here that the free child is the one who believes the promise. We've already seen that. He says, but the Jerusalem that is above that is above, is free. And she is our mother. He says there is a free Jerusalem. There is a Jerusalem that's the city of God. It's above. It's not over there on the other side of the Mediterranean. It's above. 
And that is our mother. That's our city. And he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. Both of us. That's the Jewish city now. Is the Jerusalem that is above. It's the Gentile city. It's the Athens, the Rome, the Washington, D.C., the New York. It's everything. It's Jerusalem. It's the city of God. It's where He dwells with His people. And it's above. And she's free. And she is our mother. That's where we're headed. And Paul says in Philippians, he says, Now, our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. So we have a city that's prepared for us and we have a promise that we will be transformed so that we're properly fit to be citizens of that city. That's our big hope and dream. When you get to Hebrews, you'll find that Paul says, even Moses and even Abraham were pilgrimaging not to the city on the other side of the Mediterranean. They were pilgriming to a city whose builder and maker is God. To an eternal city, he calls it. And that's where we're all going. Those who are children of the promise. They understand the promise is grand. It's glorious. And the fulfillment of the promise ultimately is to be in God's presence. So that's where we're going. And that's the reason we have hope and enthusiasm and joy. We're child of the free Jerusalem above. And then, of course, in Revelation chapter 21, what do you read at the end of the story of redemption? That here John sees coming down out of heaven the city of God. The name is Jerusalem. And then he says, I will be my people's God. They will be my people. I will wipe away every tear and so on. That's where we're headed. That's the hope of all of the people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, who are in Christ. And then notice this. He says, he quotes then in verse 27... This text from Isaiah 54, he says, For it is written, and you, and you read this text, you go, Now what, how does that prove, it? what's the connection between Isaiah 54, 1 and what he just said? Let's look at it. He says, For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now this is written to the children of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. And he's saying, you feel desolate, you feel barren, you feel like it's all over, that you're having no, you have no future, there's no child in the future for the people of God. And the promise comes in Isaiah 54, you're going to be more fruitful as the barren woman than the woman who thinks she's being fruitful. In other words, I've got a promise for you. And I'm going to fulfill it. And you're going to return with joy one day. And I've already said it's going to be 70 years and I'm going to rebuild the temple and you're coming back. And that's exactly what happened. And they came back to their land in the first fulfillment. Paul is saying there's an ultimate fulfillment of that text, the second and final fulfillment, when we go back to the New Jerusalem. And we are going to be more fruitful than you can ever possibly imagine. Every tribe and language and people is going to stream into this city. We're going to have more brothers and sisters than you can ever imagine. And all the ones who have led us to Christ will be our fathers and we'll rejoice in them. And the ones that we've led to Christ will be our children and we'll be a huge family. And Christ will be at the center of it all. And he's saying you feel desolate now because you're this little Christian group up in Galatia. 
and you're being severely persecuted. And all the churches I've planted, Paul could say, all across Asia and Europe, they're being severely persecuted. They feel totally desolate. They're marginalized. They're dispossessed. They're poor. And in the first four centuries A.D., the Christians were living in extreme poverty. We were in the middle of cities, but we fled to cities because we had no place to go. And we were the desolate mother. We looked like... It looked like we were the most foolish people in all the world. We had nothing. And Paul says, let me tell you something. You're the free sons of God. And you have the entire universe as your heritage. And one day you're going to see what I'm talking about. And this is what makes a free man. Is that he's a child of promise and he believes the promises of God. Now, in our own, in our own history, tragic history, here in this country, we've, we've had slavery. Now, I want to tell you something. If you, if you want a lesson in religion, you just sing their songs. And you see what they're singing about. They're singing about freedom. And they're singing about the future. And whenever you see God's work in a place where people are dispossessed, you'll hear the songs of Zion coming out again in real power. And that's a gift to all the church to sing those songs. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying don't get confused by these people's re- impressive religious credentials or even their physical possessions or their lineage or anything else. Stick to your guns because the child, children who are free are the children who believe the promise and have their hopes firmly set on the new Jerusalem, which is our mother coming down out of heaven through faith. Now, lastly, he really wants to apply this whole lesson. And this has been, you know probably be the last time any Judaizer attends one of the churches of the Apostle Paul. I mean, they've been completely offended now. And now he's saying, let's apply this to our lives. He says, verse 28, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. And what he's saying is, Abraham's true children, take your stand. Come on now, rise up. And let's be what you're supposed to be. Why should you be listening to this message of slavery? Somebody's trying to take you off again and put you under the bonds and the fetters. Uh, of the law and law keeping and guilt manipulation. Someone's trying to do that to you. Now you stay free. Remember who you are. You, you, we, we sang the hymn a moment ago. Charles Wesley experienced it. He was grown up, he was reared by a pastor, and Susanna Wesley, who was one of the finest Christian women you'll find, uh, he was reared in this huge family, and he devoted himself to the Word of God, to prayer, to visiting in the prisons to fasting and many, many other disciplines, but wasn't converted until some Moravians taught him the gospel. And when he really understood what the gospel was, he wrote that hymn. He had had been serving Christ, quote, quote, for years. He had been a missionary to America on multiple occasions, leading those wild, crazy Georgians to faith in Jesus Christ and setting up churches and setting up orphanages. He wasn't even converted. He was a child of Hagar. Didn't know it. Finally believed the gospel. He says, and can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now he's serving in freedom says Charles Wesley. That's what Paul's talking about. Remember who you are. You are children of Abraham. 
And you see in Galatians, I've listed several verses there, talking about we're children of Abraham, we're children of Abraham, we're children of Abraham. We're the children of the promised Abraham. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that you're an heir and you know it. And when you read in Genesis 12 what God told Abraham, that's your legacy. That's what you're going to get as a result of being in Abraham, being his child. And notice the implications. First of all, you're loved. Loved like you can't ever imagine. Your imagination is not big enough to comprehend how much the Father loves you. Some of you are better able to understand than others, but even the best of you. The the ones of you who had the kindest, gentlest, most committed, most principled Father that one can possibly imagine, you still cannot imagine how much the Father loves you. He sent His Son, His one and only Son, born naturally, eternally begotten of the Father. He sent Him and gave Him up for you. That doesn't make any sense to me. I wouldn't give up my Son, but God did. That's how much He loves His children. That's how intense this love is. And I just say, contemplate that cross. Contemplate how much the Father must love you. And just ask Him to enlarge your imagination. And use your imagination. When are the times you've ever been loved? Multiply that by a thousand. And see if you can begin to sense the Father's love for you. You're loved. You belong. You're in this family. You bear His marks. Later on in Galatians, Paul is saying, I don't have to be circumcised. I already bear the marks of Jesus. Now, he may have meant his whippings and so on and all the marks of his suffering. But he bore the marks. And gentlemen, in Christ, you bear the mark. He sees you. He knows you. He's marked you. You're his. You know, some of you have adopted children. Some of you are adopted children. And, uh, you know, you can read the textbooks. When you adopt, there's always a risk, isn't there? Because there's something about rearing a child who's got your DNA and rearing a child who doesn't have your DNA and rearing a child who knows that you and his mama are his parents and rearing a child who in the back of his mind may be wondering, I wonder who my parents really are. I wonder why they handed me over to somebody else. Those thoughts occur to an adopted child. And it's a different thing when you're rearing someone who's got those thoughts rather than rearing someone who's got your DNA knows you're a natural parent. It's different. Now, it's a wonderful thing to adopt. It's a wonderful thing to be adopted. As one of the adoptive parents here says to their children, you know, we chose you. It's wonderful to be adopted. You were chosen by your parents. You were picked out and taken intentionally. You were no accident. They intentionally adopted you. That's wonderful. But it's different. And those of you who are adoptive parents can tell us a whole lot about that. And sometimes you end up with some, some things that are a little difficult when they get into their teen years, when they're kind of working this all out. They're not sure who they are and all the rest. Well, let me tell you something. God didn't take any of those risks. When He adopted you, He actually changed your DNA. <laughs> you were actually partakers, as Peter says, of the divine nature. You actually participate in the nature of your Father. And this is what it means to receive the Holy Spirit, is He actually gives you Himself. And He looks at you just like you can look... I mean, we have two grandchildren now. We're looking at them and say, 
Oh, does she look like Drew or look like Kimmy? Oh, does she look like David or look like... Oh, I think I see Anne's mother in her. And we're picking out... Where does the nose come from? Where do the lips come from? Where does the hair come from? And we're trying to figure out where all the parts came from. Well, when the father looks at you, he sees all the parts came from him. It's all him. And you're all his. He owns you. He, you belong to him. He loves you intensely and He tends to protect you with everything in the kingdom. Everything in the kingdom He will use to protect you. That's what it means to be loved and to belong to the Father. And then, of course, you're an heir. The land, the nation, the blessings of God. You're an heir. And you know, when you really know that, it changes the way you feel about Him and about the kingdom that He's building. And all you have to do is look back at last Sunday afternoon and with the New Orleans Saints. And a whole city just gets so excited about their football team. And they're, I mean, you combine that and Mardi Gras, let me just say, I would suggest you just drive east or west. Don't go south. You're just gonna, it's going to be bad news. Don't go, if you're planning to go to Mardi Gras, you're planning to sin. I wouldn't go down there now. It's just, it's going to be wild, these people. It's the New Orleans nation. And that football team's New Orleans gods. <laughs> Isn't that the way you feel? And we're so patriotic. We love our land. And we love our heroes. You get attached. It's your legacy. It's your, it's, it's your, your inheritance. God is saying, I've given you inheritance through Abraham. It's above. It's coming down. Set your hearts there where Christ is. Not on earthly things, says the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. Get it straight. You're citizens of heaven. Be excited about heaven's football team. <laughs> Be excited about heaven's mayor. And the mayor of heaven is Jesus Christ. Get your, your whole being tied to that legacy. You are an heir. Now, lastly, B, not only are you the children of Abraham, but you will be persecuted by the children of slavery. I said lastly, but it's not. Um, time is making it be getting close to lastly. But notice, you will be persecuted by the children of slavery. He says, as I told you, in Genesis, he says you'll be ho- he'll be hostile to his neighbors. In Matthew chapter 10, what does Jesus say when he sends them out two by two? He says, you will be persecuted where? In the synagogues. You'll be persecuted in church. And I want you to know, uh, this has been going on for a long time. The Ishmaelites persecuted the Israelites. The Muslims have persecuted the Christians. The Jews persecuted the Christians. When you look at where Paul got his worst beatings, where was it? It was at the hands of the Jewish people, the covenant people, the church people. And then what do you find now? When, when the evangelical church, the church that believes the gospel, is seeking to do mission somewhere, sometimes the most difficult opposition doesn't come from other religions. It comes from nominal Christians. The biggest opponents to the progress of the gospel in any city in this country, I guarantee you, are the liberal Protestants. The nominal Christians. It was amazing. In New York, when Redeemer Church was looking for a place, the rabbis there were happy to grant permission for Redeemer to have some property. It was the nominal clergy, Protestant clergy, who railed against the idea and didn't want that evangelical church to have any property on the island. 
It's always that way. And that's what Paul is saying. These nominal church people are the ones who are hostile to the people who believe the gospel and who believe in salvation by grace alone. But notice, don't be shocked. Don't worry about it. And certainly don't retaliate. You have peace because you know where you're going. You know who you belong to. You know what your legacy is. You know what your inheritance is. You don't have to live. You can die. Guess what? You're coming back. (laughs) And when you come back, you're going to look like him and own the universe. So don't get upset about it. C, you will not share your inheritance with the children of slavery. That is, no matter what they've done or how many exploits they've, uh, they've accomplished, they're cut off. He says, but what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So he's saying, why would you listen to those Judaizers? They, they are not even going to receive the promises of God. So don't trade places with them, but do evangelize. Love them. Evangelize them. Get to know the gospel in your own life and share with them how much difference the gospel has made in your life. That's the way you share with people. That's evangelism. Just tell them what God's done for you and what difference has made and invite them to come enjoy it. That's evangelism. That's gospelizing someone. Tell them about the gospel and what difference it's made to you, how it set you free and how it's given you hope and how it's encouraged you and how you know you belong. You may have had a lousy daddy on this earth, but boy, you've got a great daddy right now. He's in heaven and he's loving you. You've got a story to tell, so tell it and tell it to the people who are persecuting you. Evangelize your persecutors. Don't retaliate in kind. Don't use their methodology. Love them. Look at Romans 12 if you'd like to see how to do that. Now, truly, lastly, you must stop acting like a slave. He says in verse 31, Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. You may indeed be in slavery, but don't act like one. Don't think like one. The Apostle Paul made tents for a living, but he didn't go around and say, man, I'm just so proud of myself, I'm a tent maker. Or I'm so ashamed of myself, I'm just a tent maker. What difference did that make? Nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he said he was speaking to slaves who were in the church, physical slaves. He said, if you get your opportunity to be free, you get free. I mean, that's a good thing. But he says, if not, don't worry about it. Be a good slave because you're free. And those who are freedmen... Most of them are actually slaves, and they don't know it. So don't submit to slavery. And let me just quickly give you these implications. You're, you, you must stop worrying about whether God has forgiven you. So often we just walk around with this profound sense of guilt. There's an answer for that, gentlemen. It's called confession and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's your answer. You're not going to find it anywhere else. If you try to find it somewhere else, you're going to be dysfunctional. Secondly, stop focusing on disciplines rather than Him. It's a good thing to read your Bible every day. It's a good thing to pray continually. But if you're focusing on your accomplishment of reading the Bible, you've missed Him. Focus on Him. A slave focuses on the disciplines that he has to do. A free man focuses on his father. He's glad to be in his presence. Stop envying others' positions or possessions. When someone drives by in their Mercedes, you say, I just wish I could afford that. You've just acted like a slave. Poor old you. You're victimized. Oh, I'm so sorry. You're stinking wealthy. Why should I feel sorry for you? You know, as you putter around in your little old uh, whatever it is. You know, why should I feel sorry for you? You're, you're an heir of the universe. 
Stop thinking and acting like a slave by envying people's temporal possessions that are all going to burn up in the last fire. Stop taking pride in your moral performance. Some of you are quite exquisite in your moral performance. Some of you are amazing in your missional work. Stop taking pride in it. You can take pride in the accomplishments of others if you want to. But if you're a slave, you're just piling up your own credentials instead of taking pride in the cross of Jesus Christ and His great accomplishment. And lastly, stop forsaking the gospel of unmerited favor. Stop seeking some way to be found acceptable before God that's not based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the promising gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this amazing gospel and how it cuts through so much of our religious presuppositions and cuts through so much of our psychological experience and sets us free and takes the chains, the fetters off our arms, off our legs, off our necks, off our hearts and sets us free. And yet, Lord, we we continually are tempted to go back and we pray that you will enable us to live as free men every day in every way through Jesus Christ, our Savior.